0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Love is a Message, Dance, Music and Counterculture. This is Matt, the producer, just popping up with a quick note to say that unfortunately we had a bit of an issue with Tim's microphone on this recording and so we're having to use the backup recording. obviously i appreciate the irony in a show partly about audiophile sound system not being able to uh tune its own recording technology correctly but hey sometimes these things happen it hasn't affected the quality of the discussion which is as always tip top so sorry about that and i hope you enjoy the show here we go
1: Hello and welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about music, dance and counterculture. I'm Jeremy Gilbert, I'm here as usual with my friend Tim Lawrence. Hi Jeremy. Um, we're going to be talking about DJs, the kind of birth of the concept of the DJs, a particular kind of artist. So Tim, when does this start, this, this idea of the disc jockey?
0: I'm not sure I know exactly when it starts, but the jockey becomes um, someone who uh, is arguably significant around about 1965. In 1965, Sybil Christopher opened a popular discotheque in New York called Arthur. It was the kind of first democratic discotheque. It was the first one to, call it, to sort of attract a sense sort of a, a sensible wider public, although that public was still ultimately quite limited. Before Terry Noel, who was, who was the kind of main DJ at Arthur, the previous significant figure if you like was a guy called Slim Hyatt uh, who was the african american butler of the owner of the of Le Club which was the first french imitation discotheque to open in new york which i think was 1961 could have been 1960 so it's kind of almost significant it seems to be almost significant that the first kind of the, the first dj in new york was hired as an afterthought by the owner who just decided to kind of get the butler Somewhat demeaned kind of figure to kind of be the, de- the be the DJ. So Terry Noel kind of stepped in in '65 in Arthur, um, and he became sort of a, a kind of he, w- he was a rec- he became a recognised figure. He uh, thought of himself as a puppeteer. These were the words he used. That was one of the words he used to describe himself when I interviewed him uh, in kind of early research for Love Saves the Day. So his his role was to kind of manipulate the audience, manipulate the crowd. And uh, because the role of the DJ at this particular historical juncture was to help uh, discotheque owners earn money at the bar, um, one of the things that the DJ was required to do or was encouraged to do was uh, was to get people to drink. Uh, and Terry Noel's technique for doing this was to build uh, his dancers up into a reasonably quick frenzy across the course of maybe five or six records. And then to put at, the, at the peak of the energy would, would be to put on a slow record. And to kill the floor, as he put it, and then people would go for, to the bar for a drink and maybe to kind of invite someone. The men, obviously, inviting the uh, woman, as it was structured uh, in terms of uh, gender and sexual politics at the time. A man asking a woman to uh, dance. This was the early kind of uh, figure of, of, the, of the DJ, and it wasn't <laughs> kind of it was a, a manipulative one. The other thing is, I mean, there was interesting. Interestingly, a guy called Michael Fesco, who on to become one of the most influential party promoters, uh, party organisers of the 1970s. Michael Fesco opened the Ice Palace on Fire Island in the summer of 1970, and that was the beginning of kind of proto-disco in in Fire Island, and then the the Flamingo in New York. And and this, this was one of the most influential private parties in New York in the 1970s. Michael Fesco went to hear Terry Noel play Arthur, and um, said, you know, you might want to dance to one or two of his records, but there wasn't, after a while, he, well, it, you wouldn't be terribly interested in what he was selecting. Uh, there was a lot of Stones. There was, you know, a fair amount of Frank Sinatra. A lot of Beatles. The music was quite rock-oriented. Uh, there wasn't an awful lot of soul. There wasn't much funk. The crowd was almost entirely white and almost entirely straight. I was only admitted as straight. So this is the kind of early shaping of kind of of, of, of the DJ. Um, beginning to emerge as someone who's a figure of attention, someone who can do things with records to kind of create a certain effect, but it's yet to kind of uh, have kind of counterculture shape its contours, really, in the way that we would soon go on to see with David Manguso and Francis Grasso. So if we're going to hear an early record uh, of, that Terry Noel would play, uh, he went on, I think, to DJ after uh, after at a place called Salvation, and one of his favourite records there was The Chambers Brothers' Time Has Come Today and this is kind of interesting record because it does um, bring in uh, certainly soulful elements into rock uh, there's a lot of heavy psychedelic elements Terry Noel was kind of very open to you know, experimenting with kind of hallucinogenics and all sorts so he was, um, he was open to this kind of sound so this was one of, the kind of, one of Terry Noel's big records Now the time has come You're listening to Love is the Message with Tim Lawrence and Jeremy Gilbert.
1: Well, so the term disco... Well, discotheque is originally coming from France, isn't it? it yeah. It's, and it's from the French biblio I mean, it's an analogue of bibliothèque, which means a library.
0: Yeah, so it's a record library.
1: And obviously other things, I mean, sp- comparable things are happening in other places, aren't they? Like in Britain, people are playing record. There are, disco- there are discotheques in Britain as well, aren't they?
0: Yeah, the absolutely. I mean, it was like sixties, and, you know, in London and civil uh, person was, um, I think she's Welsh. But um, she was familiar with the London scene of the swing 60s. I think she saw the Beatles perform and uh, in these kind of emerging clubs and bars and discotheques. Um, so Arthur was, was, out, was interestingly modelled on what was going on in London at the time. I mean, London was more of a focus for the latest night culture, in part because, no doubt, because of the kind of breakthrough of, of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, you know, made the United Kingdom... And, you know, London being a kind of, you know, an epicenter for culture in the United Kingdom made it more of a focus in some respects for this, you know, early discotheque scene in, uh, in a way than, than New York. I suppose it's because of what goes on happening in, in the United States around, you know, counterculture in particular, Woodstock, all of the production lines and distribution around, around acid uh, and maybe more of the kind of a history of black music culture. Ends up a, a longer and deeper history of black music culture and, and social dance ends up driving New York um, as something that kind of will, will go on to overtake London. But at this, Bureau, at this particular moment, it's kind of New York is, is kind of partly basing itself on, on London.
1: And it's well, it seems to me that the big difference with New York sort of music culture is, and this is partly why we did a whole episode about it already in a way, is actually, even though in that episode we didn't read really, you know, most of the music we talked about wasn't soul where we talked about how soul and funk was mostly happening elsewhere Mm. i think still it's the presence of the african-american community for whom soul is like the central musical form really for most people but for me that's the real difference in the context in britain and and the states like in britain soul is always it's, it's an american import there isn't a particularly organic connection between like black communities in britain and soul music i mean there is a connection but it's it's not that different from the relationship of like white people in britain to soul music and by the end of the 60s it's already clear in britain that british black music is really looking more to jamaica than to than to america really in terms of its influences so it's worth thinking about those sort of specific things that are happening in jamaica because i guess we talked about this a lot before recording and there's if any place or any kind of music culture seems to have started to evolve something like the kind of New York conception of the DJ as this artist who engages in a sort of rapport with the crowd, sort of communes with the crowd and helps the crowd kind of accelerate their, intensify their feelings of excitement and togetherness, then it's arguably it's the reggae sound systems in the mid-60s, from the mid-60s onwards. But I would say, I think it's worth saying this on the show, really, which we haven't really and we know the literature on this subject pretty well we haven't really come across a really convincing sort of description of like what exactly the relationship was between crowds and the DJ about you know to what extent if you're like dancing to King Tubby sound system in 69 70 like to what extent do you really have a conscious sense that you're engaged in this immersive experience which is going to go on for hours and have some sort of sense of direction I mean I know what that was like a kind of heavy dub sound systems maybe by the mid to late 70s from talking to people who were there but I think it's I think it's it's an interesting question because part of the the official story the most commonly heard story and we'll talk about this today is well, New York DJ culture is spe- ends up being heavily influenced by reggae culture and by the practices of MCing, etc. But and we also know that the con- the notion of the selector as the person who has a very specific role in the sound system, in the reggae sound system, is well developed by the end of the '60s. And we know it's. I know it's not exactly the. It's not the same as what you were describing. The kind of commercial club dj who just deliberately puts on a couple of fast records and a couple of slow ones to get people to go drinking because that's not the kind of context in which we were playing but we haven't yet really been able to nail down i think to our satisfaction like what will what, what exactly was a reggae dj set like in 1966 like what um, and, and how did it compare to say the way in which like soul and funk DJ sets would have been evolving in the early 70s in New York. So it's a bit of an open question for us still, I think, isn't it?
0: Yeah, a little bit. Um, I mean, it's interesting that kind of in a way the the historiography of dub and dub reggae uh, maybe was kind of at some point more developed than the bibliography for disco. Uh, and early DJ culture. I mean, there was until "Love Saves the Day." There wasn't too much too much of being written about kind of the development of kind of early early DJ techniques, at least within a kind of within a within a book. I mean, obviously there was the "Last Night of DJ Saved My Life," which has kind of covered the entire history as well, I suppose, but including uh, J- Jamaican reggae, dub reggae as well. My sense is that yeah, that the uh, the Jamaican the Jamaican culture, Jamaican sound system culture, was. Much more evolved than, than New York's uh, culture in this juncture of the sort of second half of the 1960s. The key figures, to a certain extent, that get talked about are the people who run the sound systems and the people who are reworking the kind of records in the studios, often kind of going straight from a, a party into the studio to kind of you know work with the kind of you know the fresh responses that records have just got to accentuate sorts of popular areas. So this idea of editing a record uh, in relationship to the the energy of a, of, a, of a dance crowd kind of seems to happen much more clearly. In Jamaica, ahead of, of New York City, but somehow the, the selector is a somewhat anonymous sort of figure. We now have become, you know, incredibly familiar with these kind of legendary names of the New York scene: uh, Francis Grasso and David Mancuso and Nicky Siano, and, and the list goes on. We seem to know more about like Jamaican producers um, and sound system owners than we do about the actual kind of selectors, the names of the selectors, and their specific techniques. Um, so part of, part of me thinks that the role, the role of the selector was almost to play, uh, was to be neutral. You just put the record on there. Wasn't there, there wasn't this kind of attempt, the, you know, the magic happened in the studio. Um, that was where the work was kind of already done. And the, the DJ was just kind of the kind of a, a sort of a somewhat more, uh, you know, a, a, the role of putting on the record. Then there's the, there's the task of reading the energy of the crowd. And having a party run run for several hours, um, and I, I haven't heard of, of Jamaican kind of parties being interrupted in a way that they they were at Arthur, for example. So you know, Jamaica was more, more kind of organic and and fluid kind of culture at that particular moment. But you know, I think things then start to accelerate uh, in in New York City um, to take this idea of DJing into a into a different kind of realm where. All sorts of techniques and and concepts start to come into play.
1: Yeah, I mean, I get. I mean, I have read about some famous named Jamaican selectors from people like Count Machuki. There's a bit of a lesion in the history between selecting and emceeing, mm. like, and some of the histories say that those roles were clearly demarcated. Yeah, and then but then often, and the, the word DJ referred to the MC. But then also when I've looked up, when I've tried to find out information about, well, who were the selector? I've read in one, so I, you read in one place, selector and MC was a different job and the selector was really important. And then I've looked up, well, who were the famous selectors then? And you see, you see, still seem to be getting names of MCs. So I'm not really clear. I'm, to be honest, I mean, my sense is, and my sense from reading books like Julian Enriquez, Sonic Bodies is that, and things like this is that, well, my sense is there was probably there was a degree of fluidity as well. And that I mean, the thing that I that people often say about the concept about the sound systems is they were yeah, they were an assemblage. They were this kind of co- collection, this aggregation of components and that I get the impression that more than in New York, you know, somebody might be in the studio one day, and they might go and pull a record on the next night, or they would hand it directly to somebody who's going to put a record on. So I get it, I get the impression there was less of a strict division of labour to some extent. You seem to get that from some accounts, but then other accounts I've read say selector was a very specific job. And, yeah, all, all that published history, it tells us what sound systems did, it tells us what producers did, it tells us selectors are important. But hasn't I haven't found anything that goes into the level of granular detail about exactly what DJs did and how DJs how DJs thought about their own practice yeah,
0: yeah. um i mean you know the idea of like you know mi- you know beat mixing for example just seems to be something that is not um integral in at all to kind of dub deb- deb- reggae culture you know and, and that in that particular moment.
1: No, but there is an idea of like presenting the record and like and, and getting a lot of cue the DJ gets QDOS. I mean what one thing that's definitely is there is this idea that the the, the selector gets QDOS. For playing a record, preferably a record no other sound system has access to absolutely like at, at the right moment, so they you do have this notion that the right record is played at the right moment, and no one else is going to have that record
0: that's also because of the competition between these sound systems, right
1: yeah right, yeah, yeah, exactly
0: and that this becomes a you know a hallmark of you know the Bronx party scene in the seventies which we'll, we''ll go on to end up calling hip hop. Uh, and, you know, and it's to a certain extent, it, come, it sort of becomes significant in the sort of downtown, what becomes known as a disco scene, uh, although it's all usually a bit more kind of complex than that musically. Also within that kind of downtown kind of disco scene, different patterns kind of emerge as well, which we're going to talk about a bit later. But yeah, at this point, the competitive nature of the sound systems uh, is, is kind of integral. It's kind of the sound I kind of get the feeling that, you know, it's, it's sort of the sound system. You're right, this is assemblage and it's the sound system as a whole, which is the attraction.
1: No, it is, yeah, it is.
0: It's obviously, it's the, it's the degree of development and base and power and precision and, you know, the, the immersive enveloping kind of experience of, of being in these, this is what it's really about. It's not really without the mix, um, basically. So this,
1: this is also maybe... Well, no, well, no, that, well that's true. But there's, I think that's just interesting because I guess what the picture that we're getting at is that there's a very similar set of elements in Jamaica and New York, but the way in which they're distributed and relate to each other is a little bit different because, it's as you say, it's the sound system that has an identity more than the individual DJ, more than the producers, more, more than the people even making their records on some occasions. It's the, it's the sound system that has an identity. And then everything else, it feeds into that. Everything, all those other elements contribute. But this includes even the role of producers. I mean, producers are associated with particular sound systems. I mean, King Tubby is a sound system guy before he's a producer. And he becomes a producer so that he can make the, you know, the freshest cuts for his sound system. It's the pro, so it is. It's the competition between sound systems, and it's the desire for your sound system to have the best, most cutting edge, most danceable sounds. That's what's generating the impetus. So, anyway, it's the wrong question uh, was it, was a Jamaica DJ like a New York DJ? Because they're, there's a different conception of who it is that's doing something, and I mean, I think mean, it is. I mean, in that sense, that is distinctive, even from New York. I, I would. It seems to me that there's a much the sense that it's a collective that's doing something, and it does, you know, and that the the individuals involved are relatively secondary to so this collective practice of the sound system seems quite distinctive, even compared to something like the loft.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's. Um... I mean, one thing that's going on here is that we've got to remember that at this particular historical juncture, if we're sort of situating ourselves in 1965, is that the DJ is not an established figure of any repute whatsoever. Um, I mean, few people, if asked, would have thought of the DJ as being an actual musician. I mean, whether, you know, this is something we might go on to talk a bit more about later on, I guess. But, you know, the. The, the job is is not esteemed. It's not seen to be skilled. It's not seen to be even particularly you know straightforwardly musical. Um, it might be that the the people who go to these you know who are immersed in these emerging cultures uh, understand things differently. And certainly in New York, Terry Noel becomes some, something of a celebrity. But it's not like people would even necessarily be
1: thinking about the significance of the DJ. And- no, and also I guess the diff- um, the difference with someone like Jamaica, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, is like Terry Noel is not drinking with the producers of the records he's playing like on the night when he's playing them. Um,
0: well, there was a certain, he might have been, there was a, there was a certain celebrity kind of cachet around this whole scene that emerged.
1: But those records he's playing are not being made primarily to be played a, a disco are they? Well, sort
0: of in, from, to a certain extent, yes, to a, to a certain extent. I mean, it depends how we think
1: of rock and roll basically. But it was it was music recording. The Stones weren't making records to be played at discotheques. No,
0: at but, but maybe some of the music that was coming out in this particular period was. I mean, there was an understand. It was quite. There was, these were quite high profile public views, and rock and roll. I mean, it was it was the, the twist. Was hang on, great. hang on. So, the twist was this, pros, yeah. right, and there was money yeah. to be made in it, and people were. But
1: the twist was like a pop thing. I mean, I, I mean, was the twist what Terry what like, this Terry Noel was playing?
0: Well, it was music that people could twist to, Yes yeah this was the form this was the last sort of you know couples pop couples dance within popular dance culture at that particular moment so so there's a, there's a certain celebrity culture like terry noel is hanging out even with owsley at one point i think um so there's an interesting connection there it's a, it's definitely something of a scene is i guess my point is that in terms of sonically or musically Uh, it's not very developed and socially it's not very developed because to go onto the floor, you need to be in a straight couple. And the crowd is, if not 100% white, very close to being, uh, you know, totally white. Um, And it's also somewhat, you know, upwardly mobile in terms of class. Uh, It's not sort of, it's not kind of straight up working class kind of culture. The other thing that kind of, I think might be interesting in terms of understanding why the DJ remains a relatively submerged figure within Jamaica but becomes a kind of a very prominent figure in in New York York and then the United States, is this kind of this history of kind of the heroic pioneer in American culture, the lonesome, brave individual who dares and takes risks in order to kind of establish uh, a new position, a new frontier. Uh, This is deep-rooted within kind of, the U.S. psyche. I, it's, I'm sure that the United States has produced well. No, I'm not sure. I would guess the United States has produced more maverick musicians or more maverick individuals, if you like, than than any other kind of country comparable per head per capita of the population. Uh, it's just in, it's just something that is, is very ingrained in. So, if we're thinking about this ingrained kind of cultural, you know, outlook and history. This suits the DJ perfectly, really. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's almost invariably an individual who is doing the DJing. If we think about DJing in this particular era, it's kind of, it is very much pioneering. Um, but there is this kind of, I suppose this, you know, this in different ways gets reflected in jazz. as this kind of, it's the drive of the, the individual, the competitiveness of the individual, but then also this kind of, you know, move to kind of collective work. I mean, jazz is about the individual within having conversations within the collective everyone is contributing their own their own kind of lines their own phrases to that conversation so it's uh you know each taking their turn to step forward with the solo so and you know on some level djing is about an individual stepping forward but ultimately it becomes something which is also ingrained within within the collective i think maybe within within jamaica there was a more of a collect- more a general collective culture uh, it hadn't entered into this kind of this phase of really of you know um, and then, you know, the, the, an emphasis on an individual, whether, you know, artist, creator, visionary, kind of defining a culture.
1: Yeah, I think that's spot on, yeah. And, I, and in some ways, like the practice of dub in the studio sort of really reinforces that, because what does dub do? I mean, the classic dub technique is to drop out the vocals. So you get, you get rid of the individual who has been the focus of like the, the standard cut of the record, and you, you bring to the fore the bass and the drums, like normally the most anonymous members of the group. And you do that because ultimately percussion and bass are more important for collective dancing in the street than the the words of the song. So I guess we should hear an example of that. So that that dub practice in the studio, which is really, really important, and it's really important because it, it's probably the, it's the first significant trance of producers doing this on really cheap equipment for me that's the big difference with like what's happened in say in britain in the late 60s with the beatles and pink floyd like messing around with studios they were using really expensive gear that like only only emi had it whereas in jamaica is like the first significant instance of people using relatively cheap mixing desks to explore the, those possibilities and so i think one of the first dub albums it's not the first Single. I mean, there's there's been dub singles since the beginning of the 70s, but I think the first dub album, or one of them, is Blackboard Jungle Dub. Lee Perry and the Upsetters, uh, with King Tubby also uh, involved. So we should hear something from that. We're making this podcast because we believe that alternative history and radical ideas should be given as much airtime as possible, yet it's increasingly difficult for knowledge of this kind to circulate through the mainstream media or university sector. We love doing it and we're committed to making sure it's available for free to anyone who wants it, but at the end of the day, for us and our producer Matt, this is what we do for our jobs. This kind of work isn't just a hobby and we've each permanently lost a significant chunk of our regular income due to the pandemic. We won't be able to carry on doing this without some financial support. So if you have the means and you like what we're doing, please consider supporting us via our Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. And thanks. So, all right, so back in New York, I mean, Tim, you've already talked a bit about the sort of cultural conditions which lead to this idea of the DJ as in some ways the central figure of the dance floor experience like almost a sort of leader figure so so who were the kind of key people in new york in the early 70s who are around whom that idea idea is crystallizing
0: yeah well we've talked about this in in passing or even a little more than passing already in previous episodes but not so much and we'll
1: talk about it again
0: we uh, we may return to it even a few more times. who knows um but yeah um the, the, key, the two key figures, and this is a line I've repeated many times um, since, you know, since uh, 2004 and the publication of, of Love Saves a Day, the key figures were Francis Grasso and, and David Mancuso. Before this moment, uh, the DJ was a relatively anonymous figure. There, I'm, I have no doubt that there were moments of genuine connection um, with, with, the, with dance floors, but the, the parties, the clubs, the discotheques, uh, weren't structured in a way, uh, and this includes their kind of their social organization, that uh, allowed the kind of the, the role of the DJ to become a, I guess what we might call an expressive figure, a creative figure. Uh, up until then, there was kind of more emphasis on the on the you know the technical role of just providing music for people to dance to which was an important role, but not, not seen to be an essentially creative one or, 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 a, or a democratic one. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the, in terms of Francis and David and who came first, we can't really know. We do know that David uh, held his uh, Love Saves the Day party on the 14th of February 1970, which happened to be a Saturday. We know that France, Francis Grasso was actually DJing at the Sanctuary, prior to the beginning of 1970, when it was a straight discotheque, and it was a failing straight discotheque. Um, And as I quite quite like to point out, uh, if you were living in New York City in 1969, uh, and you had the choice between kind of going to a discotheque or going up to Woodstock, uh, you'd probably want to go to Woodstock if you're looking for kind of cutting edge culture that's, you know, seeking out trans potential. So something happened at the sanctuary anyway. And what happened is that these two guys, Seymour and Shelley, who were two entrepreneurs, both of them Gay, who owned bars in the West Village, decided to buy out this, this failing discotheque, uh, which was located in a old in, a, in a church. So this is also it's becoming important. It's becoming significant. There's a the, two, the setting of the church, David's loft, and these quite interesting uses of buildings that have fallen out of use. Uh, and that are architecturally uh, very well suited to having a party. You know, the acoustics are good, and the spatial organisation kind of allows for a crowd to come together. With Seymour and Shelley taking over the sanctuary, the sanctuary also became the first public discotheque to admit uh, the GLBT community uh, into its midst. And so this just resulted in this kind of, you know, this crowd changing its kind of demographic kind of form overnight in a dramatic way. Um, And as as we said previously, it was the energy of the crowd that actually led Francis um, to change his style of DJing. He was already uh, more open to kind of soul and funk sounds and sort of rock elements, rock rock recordings that introduced elements of soul and funk than Terry Noel. Terry Noel was kind of, there was a sort of certain whiteness to his kind of musical taste. There was a, a lot of rock music. Um, some easily easy listening music that he would play in his punk play in his sets. Uh, Francis was was much broader, he was more radical, uh, he, uh, he would play records, he wanted to play records like, or he had records in his collection like Ola Tundy Drums of Passion. Um, and it was when when this crowd at the sanctuary diversified that he realized he had his op- opportunity to play those kind of records. David, we've you know we we've also talked about previously, he's had gone through this extraordinary journey from growing up in a kid's home, a, a children's home, where the woman who took care of him, Sister Alicia, put on what might have been weekly parties, going to the record store to buy James Brown records uh, to play to these kids. I mean, so David was, you know, in a way, when Sister Alicia was kind of an, someone we should be talking about as being a pioneering DJ. Um, it's just like, I mean, on some level, this is what always happens. Everyone gets up to all sorts of things in their bedrooms, in their front living rooms, that you know, in community centres, and, you know, it just doesn't get re- recorded in history. But the idea of someone wanting to, you know, the role of the DJ is really someone putting on music that uh, people in the same room will want to dance to. That goes back, you know, quite some time. And indeed, there is a whole prehistory of this with, with record hops and so on and so forth. Anyway, David's journey, from the, David's journey from the children's home, from this experience of Sister Alicia, from this idea of a an open and... Uh, changing but yet very important and deep community, um, being something that could also be replicated on the dance floor. David's whole experience by moving to New York, immersing himself in counterculture, um, opening himself to all sorts of, you know, sonic and social and cultural experiences, uh, channeling. Uh, this experience also through his uh, early early experimentation with with acid all of this kind of all informs um his own approach his own approach to music um and what we see with uh, with francis at the sanctuary and david at the loft is the emergence of a new a new form of dj and this dj and I, we say this always with the proviso that david didn't overall think of himself as a dj uh, he, liked, he ended up liking to call himself a musical host. Uh, again, this is something I imagine we'll talk about at some point uh, in a bit more depth. So they, it was with Francis and with David that we see this kind of new emergence of this new style of DJing, which uh, is, it's improvised, it's democratic. Uh, we can say it's of long form. These parties were generally, you know, would last for, you know, five to eight hours. They were sort of, convers- the democracy expressed itself in, in what we can sometimes call antiphony. Or call and response. It was about this kind of. It wasn't just the DJ being the puppeteer, leading uh, the crowd, educating the crowd, controlling the crowd, dictating to the crowd. The the DJ also listening to uh, and responding to the energy of the crowd, reading those all important signs in order to kind of develop a more intense kind of flow. This is a you know this is a kind of uh, really interesting new form of musicianship and we start to see you know the you know things you know artistic metaphors come into mind like you know tapestry maybe that the dj doesn't have trained musical skills that most musicians would have but they have to have a sensibility they have to have a knowledge of records and they they also do need a certain level of technique as well uh, which maybe we'll come on to talk about in a, a little bit later as well but really, this is the emergence of a, a new kind of, a, I mean, if we're talking in terms of, uh, you know, of of what we were discussing in Jamaica previously, this is the beginning of a kind of a convincing assemblage in, in New York City.
1: Well, I think it's really, it's interesting that something is emerging, which is a sort of cultural practice that will end up coming to be really central to how, in later decades to how people think about you know, what it means to, re, to engage with contemporary culture. In a whole range of ways i mean by the 90s the dj becomes this sort of archetypical figure of the person who's kind of navigating the sea of information and but it's emerging in this early stage in a way which is which prefigures all that but it's also it seems like it there's no se- separating the emergence of DJing from the emergence of crowds in these particular contexts and I mean, just as the Jamaican sound system, we said, has a specific identity, has an identity which is bigger than that, of any individual component. I mean, it seems like, you know, without the sanctuary, there isn't, I mean, Grasso isn't the, the same kind of figure, you know, and obviously without the loft, like David isn't the same kind of figure. So in a way, it's difficult to isolate sort of DJing from the emergence of, you know, club club culture, dance culture generally. And...
0: That's a really good point, actually. I'm going to interrupt you a little bit because, yeah, this is
1: one one of the things that
0: marks marks the '70s is just how rooted sort of many DJs become with the actual places where they play, and when they and they become these kind of they got do become these legendary, heroic, semi-worshipped figures in these places. But then when they play outside of them, they never are able to quite repeat what it is that they can do in their you know in their kind of primary or, or home venue i mean larry levan would go on to become a you know an example of this uh in the garage he you know he had his good nights he had his bad nights um within those nights he could you know there was there were variations but he he developed this clearly you know he was um this highly developed figure in terms of how he would dj and he had this very deeply developed kind of relationship with the pro- with the Paradise Garage crowd. Plus he, you know, you know, maybe Jamaican style, as we as we know, and we'll go on again to talk about this more, he was integral to the building of the sound system of the Paradise Garage. He said what what he he described what he wanted that sound to be like and he got pretty involved with uh, with kind of shaping the, the components and the setup and all sorts of things. When Larry went that went to play in other places, in, including whether it was going to be in in Zanzibar or whether it was going to be in Years later, uh, uh, in London, he he had the name. People understood what his skill was, but something was always missing. This is what people who had heard him at the Paradise Garage would say. And so this this also reinforces this idea of the DJ being part of an assemblage. Uh, you take the DJ, you know, out of that, and they become they become less less
1: compelling, less convincing. Tune in, turn on, get, get down. down. Good. So, I think in the, another key element of the assemblage, the collection of bits and pieces that makes the dance situation work, I mean, including the sound system and the space and the people and the DJ, uh, is the music, mm. is the records. Yeah. So, I think we should hear. I think you should introduce a record.
0: Yeah. I think that's uh, yeah. So, um, so what, what what I wanted uh, to play uh, for, for uh, this this point is the break from Chicago's "I'm a Man," effectively. This was a record that Francis would play at the Sanctuary. David would go on to, it would be one of David's most important records at at the loft as well. This is a kind of raw, quite funky rock record that then has this extraordinarily funky percussive break that uh, goes on for a good few minutes. Uh, And Francis took this, uh, took the break. And when the break came in, and this was an example of kind of, early kind of DJ technique if you like when the break in Chicago's I'm a man came in Francis would mix in Led Zeppelin's whole lot of love or rather he would mix in the vocal break from whole lot of love where it brings in the kind of you know somewhat orgasmic kind of groaning parts and Francis told me when I interviewed him about this that he uh, apparently the vocal break in a whole lot of love lasts exactly the same length of time as the as the percussive break in chicago's i'm a man so this is an example of something that i don't as far as i understand it wasn't happening in jamaica and wasn't happening previously in new york city either this is an extended mix Uh, it goes on for a couple of you know two i don't know if it's two or three minutes it's creating a new piece of music by using two existing pieces of music it's being performed on very rudimentary technology, so it's much easier for it to go wrong. Another thing to point out is that at this point uh, there are no slides or speed controls on pitch control. Thank you. Sorry, my am for getting that. Uh, yeah, there's no pitch controls on turntables. So you know, record you couldn't adjust the speed. I mean, you could always you could always kind of use your finger to you know slow it down and that kind of thing. But generally speaking, it was precarious. Uh, it was also around this time that we, you know, that Francis introduced the, the first kind of attempts at beat mixing. And, and what Francis would do with that was he he had to know his records well enough to know what the the BPM effectively the beats per minute the speed of each record was going to be in order to bring in a record that was running pretty well at the same uh, rate as the as the record that was already playing. So this is this is also you know we're into the territory of uh, you know early rudimentary de- DJing techniques uh francis being the first person to mix them together and he did this again in in response to the kind of energy of the crowd and the desire to find ways to harness the energy and have the music reflect and and uh, enhance that energy in turn okay so anyway this is uh, chicago's i'm a man the break the percussive breaks
1: You're right. I mean, what's happening, what never really happens in Jamaica actually is the fact that this music is being made primarily for dance floors leads to a big culture of very extended mixes. You know, anyone who collects Jamaican music will know it's mostly, it's nearly all seven inches always and like short tracks. So that is a really interesting thing that starts to happen, that the idea that DJs are going to be playing long sets that crowds are going to really want to get into a particular record you know, in a, in a big way, it all contributes to this notion of extension and the extended mix, which really is a, you know, it really is a kind of key development of this time. And it is, it's really interesting.
0: Well, I mean, here the extended mixes, they're all live. Obviously, they're not on records. If a DJ wants a long record, and they need long, re- I mean, they like long records, right? They like long records because the, the dancers like long. Everyone likes long records because... They're more explorative. They open out. They take you on a journey. And already this experience on the dance floor is about having a going on a journey. It's already elongated. These parties are already going on for several hours. Uh, I mean, after about a year, the sanctuary kind of it turns into an hour, it gets it's constantly in trouble with the police and it turns into an after hours venue. And at that point, it's kind of running until kind of, you know, mid mid-morning the next day, etc. With David, we know that he used uh, the psychedelic experience, the ideas conveyed there of three Bardos to structure his sets. I think it was an instinctive thing rather than a pre-planned thing. But there's already this sense of elongation, and for for DJs at this at this juncture to play long records, they have to go to albums. You know, that's where the long the long cuts can exist. Or you know, within a couple of years, and uh, they'll start to and this happens, I think. This is starting to happen in jamaica as well they'll play the a and b side of a record where the b side is the instrumental of the a side in order to extend it as well so i think this this begins around 1973 in, in new york city um but yeah these long records are, uh, you know in and of themselves they become something that i think is you know become a model for the djs they have their own inbuilt narratives their own inbuilt kind of crescendos uh, they become these sort of templates for what, what will by 1975-76 become the 12-inch single. Um I mean one you know great example of of the, of this long record as a journey within a journey effectively is war city country city. But um perhaps even more influential than that uh, in this particular kind of moment was Eddie Kendrick's Girl You Need a Change of Mind. Girl You Need a Change of Mind it has it has two breaks It has this kind of, you know, passionate falsetto of of Eddie Kendricks. It's soulful, uplifting, um, kind of gospel tinged record as well. And I think it lasts for I don't know if it's like seven minutes or eight minutes. You know, it's a long track, but it became it became in this particular era, you know, the the favorite record uh,
1: of the lot. I mean that's that track is also sometimes cited as being important because it was one of the tracks to introduce the four four on the floor bass drum pattern. When we say four to the floor we just mean the bass drum hits hits every bar of a four bar beat of a full beat bar rather than just hitting every other beat which is what would have been more normal in soul or rock or things like that. And You know, in the 90s, it became quite contentious. You know, the the fans of breakbeat music really disliked the monotonous four-to-the-floor house beat, which house derived from disco. But it's also, it's a significant sort of innovation of the moment because it seems to be a sort of template over which you can overlay lots of percussive or melodic complexity and still have a record be very danceable and because it makes you know beat matching or just programming quite easy,
0: this is partly around yeah musicians uh, and record labels wanting to to kind of feed a kind of an emerging market um, that they're slowly becoming aware of um, I mean it's in nineteen it's in nineteen seventy three that I think sept Florence Greenberg at SEPTA, has uh, allows Mel Sharon to release on a 45 single what's called the first disco mix a mix that's kind of recorded for discos and Mel Sharon was kind of heavily involved in in that whole emerging uh, downtown party scene so there's the connections are being established around around 1973 um, before then there wasn't really much knowledge of, of within within you know Philadelphia or Detroit necessarily about what was happening in 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 New York City clubs Um so, I'm um, funnily enough, I had someone uh, just email me the other day asking me if uh, Marvin Gaye had, was kind of a regular at New York City, the New York City dance scene, because of the way that re- what's going on, the recording of what's going on, was like an extended mix with records kind of merging into other records. I so thought it was a great question, and I've, I've always loved the way that what's going on, the album is produced. There is something kind of that, very, you know, trance-like and mesmeric about these kind of the way that tracks fuse and merge into each other and motifs and ideas are repeated. Yeah, I wanted to sort of find out more about how the album was produced and and where the ideas for that came onto. But I'm also pretty sure that Marvin Gaye wasn't necessarily going out dancing in in 1970, but I need to check the, read, read the biographies in order to kind of try and confirm that. But there's something in the air, I think. I mean, there's also something in the air, we talked about this already, about elements of convergence and of fusion of, you know, cultural meeting, East-West cultural meetings, uh, you know, w- the way that Woodstock, you know, wasn't indeed, wasn't just this kind of rock festival that was trying to bring in music from around the world and folk elements and, uh, you know, funk and soul elements. So this is, you know, the, I just think every, this is what's going on. Uh, and DJing, I suppose. The, what's compelling about DJing is how DJs are supposed to be nobodies. You know, they're not. If they'd asked to join the musicians' union, they wouldn't have been allowed to join the musicians' union. Uh, they would have been told that they were kind of breaking. Basically, they were breaking the union uh, by having you know unskilled, you know, untrained workers taking taking the livelihoods away of, of trained musicians the dj coming in who's much cheaper than than employing a band i mean these arguments were going on i mean i did want to kind of sort of yeah glad dropping this in because it was it was quite significant in the late 60s of this uh, tension that existed between the musicians union and the djs the dj was supposed to be this nobody and was supposed to not indeed have any skill and they you know they it's not like they cut these particularly you know, had these particularly impressive CVs. They were tended to be kind of somewhat dropout kind of figures, or kids from you know working class immigrant families that didn't have a particularly rosy future to look forward to. And all of a sudden, they enter almost by accident these party spaces. And at this particular historical juncture, history is just speeding up around them in terms of the way that all of these different groups of people and different sounds and different you know are coming into com- are coming into contact. And what better figure is there to kind of accelerate that process of contact than the DJ? Music, dance, sound systems, counterculture.
1: This is Love Is The Message. For most of the 20th century, or for much of the 20th century, you know, if people people went out dancing, they went out dancing to, to live music. And that was a real thing. And it's also, it's not the case that people, going out dancing in big groups wasn't invented in the sixties and seventies that uh, people music there. Yeah, the dance halls were, were huge and were full all, all over the countries. Um, you know, in every country we've talked about and it, and it is true. And I think it's something, it's a theme for us to think about like all the way through the show that, and this was something David was himself always really aware of actually, uh, that, well, the, the ways in which music culture has evolved ha- haven't just been the result of like cool new ideas coming along and, people getting excited by them they've also always been in response to various sets of economic imperatives and the imperative of venue owners and record companies and people making soundtracks and people making music for adverts and all these other people the imperative of those people to try to cut their wage bills has been a key driver in in lots of these developments so we shouldn't we should spare a thought for the musicians who were put out of work by the DJs, because it's not like that didn't happen.
0: It isn't. It is an interesting. It is an interesting question, and I think you know we'll. I think we're going to ret- probably return to this maybe when we come to the record pool as well of like trying to and and indeed thinking about the figure of the DJ. So maybe we should save up this 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 part of the conversation for then. But we we're into the world of post Fordist work. Unstable, you know, unstable income, and so this the DJ becomes this kind of, you know, a kind of prototype figure of someone who is operates outside of, you know, unions, but also kind of almost, almost outside of, you know, the the regular system of the United States as it's kind of established, you know, education systems, career paths. They're kind of disruptor figures. They're also these. they these channels, aren't they? They kind of all these energies get fed into them, and they process these these energies, and and kind of you know, and uh, through through these these quite these quite instinct instinctual kind of selections. When I started to write uh, research, love saves the day, which was going to be a different book altogether. It was going to be a book about house music. My uh, entire assumption was that the um, the pioneering dJs of New York City were african American, and that the key figures also were Larry Levan and Frankie knuckles, uh, who were the kind of you know the pioneering figures of contemporary dance music culture i mean African Americans played a central role um, they were absolutely integral um, but it's in, it is sort of interesting to i think given we 're talking about d j djing in this episode i think it 's worth noting that the first generation of kind of recognized DJs when DJing became something that its influence and its importance and its kind of pioneering status began to be recognized if only by by crowds this first generation was almost entirely italian-american uh, we've already got francis grasso and we've got david mancuso but uh francis is two kind of um you know closest um you know um apprentices effectively were steve de Cristo and uh michael capello and michael capello other key figures were bobby guttadaro uh you know the, the, another key key, key early figures nicky Siano. wherever we look we um uh, Joey bonfiglio uh, Ofiglio, uh, we there's just like is this kind of absolute centrality of of italian americans the easiest way of explaining this uh, is to note that many of the discotheques the public discotheques uh, had connections to the mafia, so it was just um, there was just a kind of certain ease of kind of of fami- or familiarity when these bosses or the people representing these bosses were going to kind of bring in a DJ. Uh, it was easier or easiest if that uh, DJ was going to be Italian American. Whether there was also some racism at play in in these these uh, choices, I, I'm not entirely clear. In part because yeah these these these, like these key figures, Seymour, Seymour and Shelley, are just not around. They disappeared uh, years and years and years ago. Um, so it's hard to make that judgment. But also African, uh, African-American DJs were very prominent within a mobile scene, which was kind of active in Brooklyn and the Bronx. Um, and they became sign- very early on, became also significant in the sort of downtown and, mi- and to a certain extent, midtown scene in Manhattan. T. Scott, Torreno T. Scott, started to play, I think, at Better Days, perhaps in, I'm not sure if it was 1971 or 72, uh, and he was just brought a kind of uh, solid, uh, devoted, um, passionate, joyful, soul-funk, proto-disco aesthetic uh, to this, club, this tiny club called Better Days, which was located near Times Square, so one of uh, T. Scott's kind of classic early Better Days records Sugar Pie Guy by The Joneses To
1: say I really need you
0: need you, there's no exaggeration To say I'm gonna please you please you, it's not, not just speculation To say I'm gonna keep you
1: with me, it's my determination
0: And then, you know, quite soon after, Larry Levan uh, and Frankie Knuckles um, started to get their 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 first DJing jobs. Uh, Frankie Knuckles had kind of befriended Nicky Ciano and had got a job blowing up balloons at the gallery. I think it's kind of important to also mention Nicky's, give Nicky Ciano, one of these Italian-American DJs, an important mention as well because he was extremely influential. Uh, Nicky was several years younger than David, I think. He was an aspiring DJ, got a bunch of um, early gigs in, in discotheques. He was absolutely passionate about the loft. I thought sort of, David Manguza was a complete hero. Uh, but Nicky also was kind of prone to dealing or sort of, trying to sell drugs on the loft dance floor. And for David, that was an absolute no-no. Uh, he didn't want any financial transactions to Take place um, in his home. Uh, so, on the third count, on the third time Niciciano was caught, he was kind of kicked out. Uh, and he responded by deciding to open his own private party, because up to this point he'd been playing in public discotheques. His idea was to open a straight version of The Loft. And he tried to do this uh, with a, a close friend of his uh, called Robin Lord, a uh, female friend. And it opened. I can't, not quite sure if it was November '72, late '72, or very early '73. Um, but it kind of more or less flopped. But then David went to Europe in the summer of '73. At the last loft party that David held before going away that summer, Nicky Siano stood outside the uh, six or seven Broadway and started a handout flyer saying, "You know, where are you going to dance next week? Why don't you come along to the gallery?" And the gallery's kind of uh, membership or invite list increased by sort of 500 the following week, as people look for somewhere they can have a loft life experience. Uh, Nicky kind of uh, hired Alex Rosner, who was already, had already working with David on the loft sound system. David would later go to the gallery and said that of all the parties that kind of opened in the slipstream of the loft and trying to imitate it one way or another, or at least draw inspiration from it, maybe I should say, uh, he felt that the gallery was the closest to the loft. Um, but the thing, the point I uh, kind of, I suppose, really, that was a bit of a long intro, maybe, but the point I really want to make is that Nicky emerged as a different kind of DJ. And I think it's probably we just kind of want to, you know, track these developments, because uh, they're reasonably significant. Um, I mean, Franco introduced rudimentary mixing, uh, but it could be rough. And by around 73, Francis' career was already nosediving. It also didn't help that he'd been basically beaten up by the mafia for kind of just like, you know, just taking on a job in the wrong discotheque, basically. Um, So his career kind of, you know, starts to get a bit bumpy. You know, David was pretty radical, but there was something uh, in the way that Nicky conducted himself just in person that was even more radical. There were no boundaries kind of with with Nicky.
1: He's this flamboyant, polysexual, you know... Very, you know, upfront about his drug use.
0: So Nikki had a different personality to David. He had a, a crowd that was not that dissimilar to David's in the end, but he had a different kind of personality. And he just ended up becoming a very different kind of DJ as a result. Partly he was, as you said, it was kind of more expressive and more flamboyant. So uh, he was much more into kind of female vocals, you know, that express kind of different forms of emotional intensity than than David was. Um, but he was also just kind of a busier, kind of um, more um, proactive. I think is one way of putting it. DJ. Uh, one thing he would do is he would change the speed of a record if he if he if he needed to do that to make a to make a mix. Someone like Francis Grasso. Uh, and also, David saw this as sacrilegious, and they thought that the dancers would know that the record speed was being changed, and that they wouldn't necessarily like it. Uh, that you shouldn't interfere with the original record. Uh, they both believed this. Whereas Nicky was a kind of, you know, to hell with it kind of figure. If it, if it was, you know, in the in the spur of the moment, the ecstasy and thrill of the moment, he would be, he would do whatever. Uh, he needed to do to kind of accentuate the, the kind of mix. So he would change his speed. He would also interrupt records in mid-flow in order to kind of establish kind of, you know, uh, more developed kind of mixes, not just wait for a record to kind of reach its last bars and then bring in the next one, but he would interrupt records if the if through listening uh, with the headphones, that seemed to be the right moment to kind of make the switch. So there was there was kind of much more drama uh, and energy uh, that came through in, in his mixing. Um, and he also introduced three turntables. Um, I think that there had been this had been used even briefly in the 60s at one point, maybe even by Slim Hyatt. Um, but with Nicky Ciano, it became something that was kind of very much focused as part of the kind of creative process that heightened the drama. Uh, one of the things that he liked to do was kind of play uh, sound effects of, say, jet, uh, jet planes taking off. Um, and he would kind of use this as the bridge between two records so this is how the third t- turntable came into use there and i think nikki as far as i'm aware was the first dj to at least use the third turntable in a really sustained way so a different kind of level of djing has coming sort of came into being uh, with nikki i mean it might be you know i've mentioned francis that michael capello was a very skilled mixer he was very smooth very instinctive. There was a kind of elegance and uh, you know, a rhythm to what he was doing that was kind of much more nuanced and much more polished than anything that Francis Grasso was achieving at the sanctuary. And uh, anything that David was trying to do at the loft, because there's this kind of technical level of of you know putting on records wasn't of a huge amount of to David. Dave just wanted to mainly get the the needle on the record without kind of, you know, without it skipping or sliding or whatever it might be. Um, so it's really in a sense with Nicky I think we sort of have the birth of kind of the modern DJ if you like you know he develops r- radically what Francis and Michael Capello and Steve DeQuisto and others are already doing he draws heavily on David but already David is kind of withdrawing from this kind of you know this conventional role of the, of, of the DJ or the new model of what the DJ is to be which is a performer
1: Okay, well, this is um, we've mentioned before that novel "Dancer from the Dance" from um, mm. what's the guy's name? Andrew Holleran. Andrew Holleran, which is a sort of classic novel, early novel about people going to the sanctuary mostly. But the record that gets mentioned there is like the big anthem of the not of the of the sanctuary, which was also of the a big anthem at the gallery is Zulema's um, "Giving Up." is hard to do. Oh, It's really interesting to think about this track. I think in, in the ways in which, like, it's a, it's not the kind of track David Mancuso would play at the loft because it's got this kind of angst about it, the sort of camp angst, really, which. From David's like rather sort of you know rather sort of straightforward you know arguably sort of poe faith sort of sixties earnestness. It's not, there isn't really much to like about it. It's a song about heart. It's a song about heartbreak and dependency. It's not a song about the sort of purity of love. But then I think for I think Siano is really interesting You say so Siano in many ways like when, I mean the way you describe him Tim is he does sort of he does sort of prefigure modern club culture. And the way, it, yeah, a lot of club music and club culture from the eighties onwards, it plays with camp. It plays with inhabiting kind of slightly dark emotions sometimes as part of the sort of emotional repertoire of the night of the, and of the DJ. And this is all going on here in this very sort of impassioned, but also slightly anguished sort of got it's a gospel influenced track with a lot of piano and like very sort of powerful vocals but it's also very secular very almost sort of angsty but it's but that sort of adds to its power and I think he does he does I think I think this is a good illustration and as you say Tim of the way in which Siano really sort of it he does sort of extend the idea of what the psychedelic DJ in the early seventies might be, and in a, in a way, he he ends up prefiguring sort of later developments in club culture and club music uh, as directly as anyone else does. Because there's a lot of a lot of the kind of qualities of this record are going to be familiar to like anyone who went out raving like between 1988 and like the present day to some extent. I mean, it's a it's a hands in the air record. It's not just a kind of, you know, getting, you know, profoundly tripping on the dance floor records. I mean, I I really like it. I like, and I like playing it because everybody goes crazy and kind of, you know, throws their hands up in the air. But I'm always conscious when I, I, I always, I'm always conscious when I do that David wouldn't quite have approved.
0: Without music, life would be a mistake.
1: Well, so I think with those figures, with Ciano, Grasso, T. Scott, David Mancuso, you've really got the the first generation of the New York DJs. And I think we'll carry on the story in the next episode.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think this just, you know, just to kind of end with a, a little thought, this kind of figure of the kind of party DJ, the discotheque DJ, uh, is a new figure. There's a real heady excitement um, to this because, you know, there's the newness of the new anyway, which is exciting. And then it's the newness is happening within this culture, which is all about, you know, it's about pleasure and expression and music and dance and New York and downtown. And and I think it's just about, you know, just recognising how open this field was at this particular moment. Um, I mean, I guess these guys are kind of, you know, they're inventing the wheel and they're, you know, they're using, you know, Two circular platters, in order to kind of, once in Niki Siano's case, three to go about their craft. So it's it's almost as if everything kind of is
1: is open in front of them.